Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. And I wanted to draw your attention to something that before we get into the Bible study, I'd like for you to know, and that is Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and if you'll uh, go there with me uh, for just a moment, and then I hope that you'll um, settle your heart in this. This is a Psalm of Asaph. And Psalm 73 says this, True God is good to Israel, even such as are, as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps well nigh slipped. Why? For I was envious at the foolish. What are foolish people? What do foolish people do? Psalm 73 and verse number 3. What do foolish people do? They cast aside their knowledge. Uh, foolishness is the, is the misuse of knowledge. Or, you know, I, I, I know something, but I don't do it, right? So wisdom is the right use of the knowledge. And so we always want to be wise, right? So he was envious at the foolish. Now, do we live in a foolish world? Yeah. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They don't have problems. Even they go to death, and it seems like you know, go in glitz. You know? uh, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. Boy, they just when you look at them, they look like they're doing real well. Um, so they stand out with fatness. They have... More than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, uh, against the heavens, and their tongues walk through the earth like really arrogant, like they they know everything and it just there they go. Verse ten. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them, and they say, "How doth God know?" And is there knowledge in the Most High? What does God know? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Here's the, here's the idea. I, I have gotten right with God. I've confessed my sins. I've tried to live a right life. And I've done it all in vain. That's what... That's what the psalmist is saying. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. He's wondering if doing right is worth it. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Until I got into the presence of God, it wasn't until I got there that I understood 
oh, you know what? They might have it now, but they will not have it always. And it is always right to follow God. So I'd encourage you to maybe read over that a couple more times, let that sink in. As you, as you look around uh, and see all the junk that goes on in the world, just remember, we've got to get to the presence of God or we'll be all messed up. Our minds are thinking we'll be envious, we'll be struggling, we'll feel like we're going to slip. And uh, Shar, I think it's your favorite verse and my wife's favorite verse, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the, end of my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, verse 26. All right, let's jump into Ezra. Ezra tonight, Ezra chapter number one. And uh, our goal is to overview these, and I think if we can see them as a whole, that it will really help us tonight. So Ezra uh, chapter number one. And I want you to notice this. Uh, as we open up this book, it really highlights uh, and breaks into uh, this man or this king, Cyrus. And so as a note of where we've been, uh, we probably should just highlight this. We've looked at Genesis up to, up to uh, Chronicles now. Miss, uh, Miss Jeannie told me she's been reading through Chronicles. It's all right, Miss Jeannie. We, we all have boring parts of the Bible. And she, she says, boy, Pastor, those are, those are boring books of the Bible. You know, it, history, dry and dusty, right? Until you realize the whole, whole of what God is doing. But we've been in Genesis. God is a covenant God. He is faithful to his covenant even though uh, humanity fell. We've been in Exodus and we've seen the redemption of God, how we need to see our sin. We see the substitution for our sin and we see that in Jesus Christ, our Savior, especially seen through the Passover. Leviticus, we see uh, it's all about the holiness of God, the mediation of the priest uh, between God and man, offering those sacrifices, looking forward to what Jesus would do for us, and a lot about sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, that would one day be shed for our sins. Numbers, God's faithfulness and patience in spite of our faithfulness, following the people through the wilderness. Uh, Deuteronomy, everyone's looking at the screen, all right? Take that off the screen for a minute because they're all distracted and they're not even listening. Uh, Deuteronomy, loving obedience, only possible with a new heart. They're looking at the dates. Uh, only possible through a new heart, and that's what God wants from us. Joshua, God is the ultimate leader. Um, and, and he's showing that, and in, in, in through the, the leadership of uh, Joshua, he's showing that, leading through him, I will be there for you, Joshua. Don't fear judges. We see all the broken saviors God brings into his people to bring them uh, deliverance, but over and over they, they mess up, but God is still faithful nonetheless. And in Ruth, we see God on the, the picture of hope and love. There's always hope, even in a foreign country, even when everything falls apart in life, there's hope and love, and that love especially seen through uh, the love of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. First and second Samuel, we've seen kingship, the failure of all these earthly kings looking forward to that one king who will sit on the throne of David. I heard this week one of those uh, guys over in Afghanistan say, we, uh, we believe that we will, as Muslims, we will take over the world. We will rule the world. That is our goal, and we are very patient about that. And uh, they're very wrong because one day Jesus Christ himself will sit where they want to sit and they will not have that opportunity. Uh, and by the way, they will get close. At the, uh, the world will get close at the Battle of Armageddon, but Jesus will show uh, himself very powerful at that point. And so First and Second Kings, we see the, um, the difference between the obedience and the rebellion. 
uh, of, of, of God's people. When you obey, there's blessing. When you uh, disobey and when you rebel, there's always bondage and there's always, uh, there's always problems. First and Second Chronicles is simply a history lesson given to the returning Jews that we're going to be talking about tonight to remind them of the mistakes of the past so they don't repeat them. Did they repeat them? And sadly, we repeat mistakes too because we don't learn from history. And uh, we can see that even played out in the world today. And so Ezra, that leads us to Ezra. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came by the mouth of Jeremiah. Notice Jeremiah. Uh, it might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up uh, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that, a proc that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me, notice, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a guy that's, that's uh, living in Israel. This is a pagan, you know, this is a king in a pagan country. But he respected, he respected God, had respect of God. But notice how he says, the Lord has given me charge to build him a house in, at Jerusalem. This is not Solomon's temple. This is after that, which is in Judah. So remember, Judah's down in Jerusalem. Israel was the southern uh, part, uh, the, uh, the northern part. Judah's the southern part. And so here we have, uh, he says, to build a house uh, in Judah. Who is there among, uh, among you of all his people? His God will uh, um, be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build a house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting about this. 150 years previously uh, in Isaiah, we have God prophesying through Isaiah that Cyrus would be raised up to do his bidding in this way. Now, this is very important. This is very, very timely to where we are right now because we wonder where God is, what God is doing in the world. And the fact is, God, even through pagan kings, can do his will. But he prophesied, God gave through Isaiah 150 years, Isaiah 44 and verse number 28, he mentions him by name. Can you imagine reading through a scroll and seeing your name and what you were going to do in your life? That's pretty stunning. So here's this man. He took it to heart. He realized that God had called him years previous to do this. And so, God, um, so this is how we open up Ezra. There's going to be a decree here. And this decree is going to come from Cyrus. And he is going to motivate God's people who are in bondage because of their sinfulness against God. They're in captivity. He's going to say, all right, it's time for you to go back. And we're going to rebuild the temple, the temple that was destroyed. The temple of Solomon that was, was destroyed because of your sinfulness, but it's going to be rebuilt, and God will be with you. And so this is coming from them, and so there is going to be an, uh, a returning group back to, uh, back to uh, Jerusalem. So the author of Ezra is Ezra. Uh, it was likely written a little bit, uh, you know, we start in, 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 uh, in chapter number one, and uh, Ezra doesn't get back to Jerusalem until on chapter number seven or eight. And so uh, it, it's written around that time. There's a history that is written that, that catches up uh, in what God is doing there. But Ezra is a scribe. He's a priest. He's a scholar. 
uh, he was a man who put his heart into studying the Word of God. And he was one who loved God's Word. In fact, if you go forward a couple pages, Ezra chapter number 7 and verse number 10, when Ezra finally comes back, we'll break down the, the returns in a moment, but when Ezra comes back, I want you to notice what the Bible says about him. This very specific man, it gives his genealogy and everything. This Ezra, which came up from Babylon, verse number 6, go down to verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Notice that. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Personally. He could not help others do what he had not done first. Dads, we cannot help our children to seek the law of the Lord, the word of God, if we have not done it first. We cannot help our wives or lead our wives to do that if we have not done it first. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, now notice, and to do it, and then notice, and to teach it in Israel, in Israel, statutes and judgments. So you have personally seeking it, personally applying it, and then teaching it. Sometimes we get it in the wrong order. We try to teach something that we haven't personally sought and, and done. So he, he had a heart for God's word. Now the time frame of this book, it was written around when the, when the second group of Israelites returned back to the land. Right now I think it would be really helpful to try to put these all in order, uh, these different returns, so that we can see where we're going tonight. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther uh, and I want you to see how these returns all happen. So if you give me, um, well, I have it right here in front of me so that we uh, know the right slide. All right, here. Um, so this is kind of an overview slide of what we're, we're trying to overview tonight. We have each one of those, uh, those white, white columns there represent a return back to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. So we have 70 years of captivity that go up till until uh, Ezra's return. And so we have this, uh, and in the first one, Zerubbabel is sent back. Cyrus gives this decree, 538. He gives this decree. They go back, and they're supposed to begin working on the temple. Now, there's a whole story that gets uh, locked up in there. In fact, one of my most favorite messages that I've gotten to preach here is in, uh, it was done in 2019, the Vision Sunday of 2019, when you network all of that God is doing in this time frame between Zechariah, uh, Haggai, and back here in Ezra, and uh, what an amazing thing that God is doing. But basically, they go back, they start building the temple, they don't, uh, they don't do so, uh, so well at it, they let it kind of slide, they get the foundation in place, they, they let it slide, and God has to stir them up through Haggai, and through Zechariah to get back to uh, work and get the temple built. And the temple gets built, finished in um, 15, 15, or 515 um, B.C. So that's under Zerubbabel. That's that first group. That first group that goes back, it, there's about 49,000 people that go back in that time. It's a large group. In fact, give me the map, would you, for a second, then um, flip back to this. Uh, it's a large group that goes back. It's quite a journey that goes back. 42,000 Jews, there's servants and singers that go back. And so uh, those were going to be helping in the worship and so on. So this large group is going back. That's the first, first, uh, uh, the first uh, return back. When we go over to uh, middle of Ezra, we have the second return. Ezra leads this group back. And, the, and there the people are revived. Ezra is working with them with the word of God. And then the third group that goes back is in Nehemiah, and that's when the walls are built. So we have those three groups. So I want you to keep that in mind. In fact, on the back of your handout, 
this, this is uh, listed out there so you can keep it in mind. I, I think it helps us to track what's going on here. So we have uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra is co- uh, covering the first two returns. The last return is in the book of Nehemiah. But you notice where uh, Esther is? Esther's story happens in between the first and second return. So that's where uh, she falls into the mix there. All right, so let's progress in our, in our notes tonight. The focus of Ezra is restoration and revival. The restoration of, of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple, they needed that. That was important. God had assigned that through, through Cyrus, and there needed to be a revival, rekindling in God's people. And there were times, even in a span of 15 years, that God's people lost sight of what God had called them to do. Yes, even building the temple. They got to the point where they were just walking by the foundation. They're like, uh, another day. Uh, another day my grass needs mowed. Uh, another day I need to put an addition on the house. They were literally doing that. And they're walking by, by the temple foundation for 15 years. God sent people into their lives to, uh, to cause them to be revived in their hearts and get back at the work. And so as we overview the chapters The first six chapters deal with the group that was led back by Zerubbabel. And it covers 23 years from the time Cyrus gave the proclamation, go back, build the temple, until the temple was complete. But a lot of history was was covered during that time. And as I already said, that's when Haggai and Zechariah uh, prophesied. And uh, Haggai opens up and really challenges them. I think of Haggai like kind uh, uh, kind of an evangelist. Uh, he was a fiery preacher. He came in and said, what are you doing? Living in your sealed houses. God's house is not built yet. And they're like, well, how are we going to do this? We've been told to stop. The, all this opposition's coming up against us. And then Zechariah comes along, a real pastorly type figure, and says, hey, I just want to remind you that it's not going to be by might, and it's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by my spirit, saith the Lord. And he reminded them that nothing happens without the help of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the message. And you know what? It got built. It got built. And so God showed them uh, through that. And so that's all happening in the, in, in, as a matter of time. It's all happening within those first uh, six chapters. And then the, the last chapters, 7 through 10, the second group uh, uh, goes back about 60 uh, years, 59 years after the first group went back. And it's led by Ezra. And so that happens in about 458 B.C. There's about 2,000 people that are returning, so not as large of a group. But during this time, God begins to use Ezra to stir up all these people that are back in Jerusalem now. So we have this population that's growing back there. They have a temple now, and Ezra comes back. His heart is on fire. He has sought the law of the Lord. He has done it in his own life. He's practiced it. He's living out the example, and he's now saying to the um, the people there, hey, I want you to do this too, and so God is using Ezra to stir up the people. So there's been all sorts of struggle. As you catch this in the book of uh, uh, Ezra, there's all this struggle. God's sending them back. They're struggling to do his will, and God is encouraging through prophets, keep on going. It's going to be by my spirit. He sends them Ezra, this um, this, uh, well-known priest and scholar and scribe, this one who writes down the word of God, and uh, he uses, God uses him to stir up the people to do what they ought to do and lead them into spiritual revival, renewing their obedience to God. And you know what? God still does the same thing today. The thing that is going to turn around America, the thing that is going to turn around any wayward believer is, is the Word of God. Is the Word of God. I was reading in, uh, in Ezekiel, um, and it, well, you received my email this morning. 
And that really just grips me. Let's not be like that. Let's not just, you know, hear the word of God. Did you catch that? They're literally sitting in the pews, you know, not pews, but they're literally sitting, listening to um, Ezekiel, and God says they heard it, but they didn't do it. And they, they said with their mouth they loved me, but their heart was drawn after their own covetousness. I'm like, man. And, and the fact is we do the same, the same thing, and, and may the Lord help us uh, grow in sincere love towards him. So in all of this, as we think about this, Ezra is really just leading towards that spiritual revival. Let's obey God. Let's do the right thing. But we also see this. God is faithful to his people regardless. He's constantly working with his people. Aren't you thankful tonight God's constantly working with you? Because we, we can really mess things up. Uh, and we often do. Disobedience brings hardship. God offers redemption and restoration all the time. He's constantly there. Come back to me. Co- constantly just wooing us back to himself. And then God is sovereign over secular rulers. Even over pagan rulers like, like Osiris. God is sovereign and he accomplishes his purposes in the world. That's something that we have to come to grips with. Isn't it? Do you like all the decisions you've seen this week? No? You all have an opinion? Probably. But you know, ultimately, God, God is in charge. And that's not a fatalistic view. We ought to pray and we ought to, we ought to do what we can. But I'm telling you, God is in charge. And he is accomplishing his will in the world, and we are, we are fastly running to the end. I'm thankful for that. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Nehemiah leads us into a continuation. Remember, God is using Nehemiah and, uh, and Ezra together. Nehemiah 6, so the wall was finished in the twelfth and fifth day of the month Elu, in the fifth and fifty and two days. And it came to pass when, that when all the enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were, uh, were there about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this was a work wrought of God, of our God. So here's, what, here's the story. So the temple is built, right? The temple's built, and now uh, Nehemiah is getting word that, uh, that the walls around Jerusalem are cast down. This was a reproach to Jerusalem. Uh, a city without walls was left uh, you know, un, uh, uh, unsecured. And so he was, he was burdened about this. And you might remember the story as the book of Nehemiah opens up. He is a cupbearer for the, the king. He's a servant to the king, King Artaxerxes. And he comes in one day. Uh, it was a dangerous thing to do, but he comes in one day, very cast down in his, in his, in his face, in his uh, demeanor. And the king notices, and the king asks him what, what is going on. And uh, in that very moment, the Bible helps us understand that Nehemiah prayed a very quick, silent prayer. <laughs> Lord, I need your help because it's not a good situation to be sad in the presence of the king. Uh, one of the reasons it wasn't a, a good thing to be sad in the presence of the king, he was supposed to protect the king, taste his, uh, taste his food and so, uh, so on, make sure it wasn't poison. And uh, if, if, the, uh, if his servant was being a little bit down or a little bit off, it kind of gave the, uh, the king the creeps uh, about, you know, am I safe and so forth. And so Nehemiah comes in that day, the king asks, and he shares his heart, tells him what's going on. And God moved in this pagan king's heart to uh, allow Nehemiah to go back, which says a lot about Nehemiah's testimony and a lot of Nehemiah's character before the king. He allows him to go back and 
uh, lead the rebuilding of the walls. That's greatly simplifying the story. But Nehemiah went back. This took a lot of strategy on his part. So Nehemiah, as the author of this book, Nehemiah, uh, is this, this man who is very interested in Jerusalem. His heart is there. He wants to be back there. God allows him to go and go there. And that just tells us something else. Even when we're in situations where we are, we are in a secular job, do you know that God can make a way for us to do his will? We need to remember that. Because sometimes we roll over and just let the, the, the world walk right over us as Christians. But you determine to do the will of God and ask our God, uh, God a way to please him in all things. He'll make a way. And so he did, even with this great king. So Nehemiah uh, goes, um, goes back. Now the time of the writing, around 444 um, B.C., and, uh, and the first group had, uh, you know, that, that had uh, returned was about 94 years previous. So Nehemiah is about ready to lead another group back to leave Persia, go back to Jerusalem, and uh, lead in the rebuilding of the wall. Now, there's already a population there, so they're going to use some of them to rebuild the wall. By the way, it's fascinating to read how the wall was rebuilt. All the people that got involved, even the priests, so the, pre, uh, the, uh, the priests were involved, there were ladies involved, there were a bunch of people involved in the, the rebuilding of that wall. And so it is an amazing thing. So the focus of Nehemiah really is this, leadership. And we can define leadership as, as influence, and each one of us has an element of, of leadership, but he had leadership. He went back with vision, and he went back with prayer. It wasn't, it wasn't something that he thought of. He went back with prayer. From the very first moment in the palace when he was caught by Artaxerxes, he was praying. When he went back, he prayed. He went around the city, and he prayed. He didn't even, there's a lot of leadership lessons that we can take from Nehemiah. He went out there and surveyed the situation first and looked at the situation to see, get a plan. Then he brought others to, along with him uh, to, to, to develop the plan together, and they went forward with vision and prayer, and we can learn this. God provides leaders and resources to accomplish his purposes. Yes, he does. And we need, to, uh, we need to believe that. So as we overview this, the first seven chapters really deal with the rebuilding of the wall. And that was no small, small detail. Remember, that wall was pushed down. So it wasn't like, uh, call up Lowe's and get, a, get an order of bricks. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, uh, let's, let's rebuild the wall with the, the rubble that was there. And, and it was an amazingly difficult job, but they did it. And chapters 8 through 13, it was the renewing of their worship. And so after they got the walls built, if you'll go over to Nehemiah chapter 8, there's an amazing story that happens here in Nehemiah 8. All the people gather themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. So they, they, they've gotten this thing built. Mm. I'm sure that was just a, a joy to their heart. They're there before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra brought the law before the congregation, both men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Someone tell me what that means right there. And all that could uh, um, hear with understanding. What does that mean? What? No. Okay. So they could understand words. So I'm assuming they had a uh, they had they had childcare somewhere, right? Or mom stayed home, 
I don't know what, what it was, if this was the, the first inst- instance of nursery, but there was, who was there in the streets was men and women and everyone who could understand, which is a pretty amazing thing. So families were together there, and they were listening. So here's what happens. And he read therein, in the book of the law, verse 3, before the street that was before the water gate, from morning until midday. Well, this is in revival, and so we want revival, right? Before the men and women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were, now notice, attentive unto the book of the law. And then he goes down a little bit further uh, in verse number six. Uh, Ezra blessed the people and blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, with lifting up hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's really an amazing thing. Verse number five I mean, he opened it inside of all the people. There was even a platform um, that, was, that was put up in order for this to uh, take place. So it's really an amazing thing that happened. There was a spiritual revival happening. The temple was built. The walls were now built. That was a feat in and of itself. There was a lot of opposition to that, a lot of opposition to that. In fact, if you notice in verse number, uh, uh, Nehemiah 6 and verse number 3, and I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? That's what Nehemiah said to the opposition. I'm up here. I'm building this wall. I'm not coming down to mess around with you. There was tons of uh, uh, opposition uh, towards them. So uh, this is all happening, and they're, they're renewing their worship. God is working in their lives. And as we think about this, there's incredible power in vision that God gives. This is what God wants us to do. Let's do it for the Lord. There's incredible power. And there were people that followed along with that. There was Nehemiah who said, I will, I will do that leading. There's also incredible usefulness in those that are humble, like a Nehemiah, uh, when they're willing to lead, when they're willing to be humble in the hands of God. Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I'll do it. There's spiritual resistance to every God-glorifying project. Yeah. If you're going to build some walls in your family's life, some boundaries, some standards, there's going to be opposition. There absolutely will. If you're going to build some safeguards in your own heart and life, against the pressure of the world and the constant pressure of the world to conform to them, there's going to be some opposition. You're going to try to witness for the Lord and live a holy life out in the world, there's going to be opposition. Anything that we take on as a church, there's going to be opposition. In fact, uh, that, that's absolutely the case. And there is biblical ways to overcome. God told me to do it, and with his help and with his power, we're going to do this by God's grace. And I'm not going to come down to mess around with the naysaying. That's what Nehemiah did. What a, man, what a man of influence he was. And praise the Lord for that. So as we think about that, God has done an amazing thing. He's brought his children out of captivity. He's brought them back to the land. He's reestablished their worship. He's renewed their hearts. He's, put a, he's allowed them to put a protection around them in the, in the form of a wall. And so now this city stands and is reconstituted as a nation. And they're standing there. And this has all been done by the power of God. Of God. Sometimes we wonder, as, and I'm just going to side trail for a second here. Uh, you, we wonder about 
you know, how the Bible is laid out, it's just really important that you look at that, that timeline and see what's happening. You have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These are all working together, same time, and uh, you take the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, same time frame, God is, God is working here. So as we think about that, God is doing such an amazing thing. Esther, Esther, uh, verse number 14 of chapter 4 in Esther, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That was Mordecai speaking to Esther, who was in a situation where all the Jews, she had been placed in the palace, all the Jews were going to be exterminated within uh, Shushan the palace through, uh, throughout that, that kingdom. All, the, all of them were going to be exterminated by this wicked man, Haman. And so God uses Esther in a, in a very specific way. Now, we don't know who the uh, author of Esther is, uh, likely a person who is very familiar with what was going on inside the palace, so had an inside scoop. Uh, the time, like I said, is between the, uh, the first and the second uh, uh, returns, so that, that time frame. And the focus really is this, the providence of God. Remember, we talked about providence on Sunday night, the, uh, the pro-video, uh, the scene beforehand, the providence of God and his ability to guide and uh, to work out a solution uh, that is according to his purpose. And so we see the faithfulness of God as well in pagan times. In the midst of just absolute wickedness, we see the faithfulness of God. In verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2, Esther wins a crown. God moves her from the house of, of Mordecai into the palace. And there's a lot of, lot of story, a lot of drama that, that is around that. But essentially, uh, Vashti, the queen, uh, messes up. Uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the king, and so uh, the king says, you know what, we're getting rid of her. Someone put, uh, get, puts a bug in his ear saying, hey, why don't you have all the young ladies, all the uh, virgins throughout the, uh, throughout the land come, and uh, we'll basically have a beauty pageant and see which one you like the best, and that'll be your next queen. And so e Esther got uh, rounded up in the midst of all that, but God gives her favor in the, in the sight of this king, and she becomes the next queen as a Jewish young lady. And you think about that, that's pretty amazing. But she was told by Mordecai, don't, don't, uh, don't say what your nationality is. Uh, just just go, along, uh, go along with it. Don't say what your nationality is. And so she becomes the next, next uh, queen. In chapters 3 and 4, Haman, the second in command, vice president or vice king, he plots against the, uh, against the Jewish people because he's really aggravated, uh, particularly at this, at this man Mordecai. And so he plots that we're gonna, on a certain day, we're going to, we're going to annihilate them. And he's also going to take out Mordecai. And he's going to hang him on a gallows. And so uh, it, it goes that way. Well, uh, Mordecai finds out about this, shares the, the news with Esther, and really urges Esther to go in and talk to the king. But Esther hasn't been granted an audience. And so Esther can't go in for fear of being killed herself. If she wasn't granted an audience, she didn't have an appointment, she couldn't go in unless the king would hold out the golden scepter and welcome her into, uh, into, his, uh, into his presence. So uh, Mordecai says, hey, we're going to have fasting and prayer. We're going to unbathe this in prayer. 
And who knows, if you haven't come into the kingdom for such a time as this, and she goes in. Now, right before she goes in, the Bible says that she says, if I perish, I perish. She totally surrendered her life uh, for, her, uh, for her people and went in uh, seeking to save uh, her people in that way. So she goes in, a uh, very courageous move on her part, and in chapters 9 through 10, God works it out that, that his people are spared through the courageous efforts of Esther. Remember, Esther invites the king and Haman over to a dinner at her house. They come over. King says, well, what do you want? Well, come over for another dinner. What do you mean you, you, you invited me over here to, you know, to invite me to another dinner? I'll tell you tomorrow night. I'll tell you everything that's in my heart. She comes over the next night, and, uh, and Esther begins to share with the king that there's been a plot that has been, uh, that has been planned against the Jewish people and against my people. And so uh, she unveils that it is, that it is Haman, and uh, so the king, remember, he goes out into the garden. He's pretty steamed. He's mad. He is mad. And uh, now Haman is begging for his life in a very, you know, just kind of uh, throwing himself all over Esther and just begging for his life. He knows that things are turning against him. When the king comes back in, he goes, are you going to force the, on the queen? And he, he, uh, he says, you know, you take him out and, you know, he's going to take care of him and uh, get rid of him, execute him. Someone put in the king's ear that there was a gallows made, right? You talk about the turning of the story. The gallows is made, and, uh, and oh yeah, this gallows is made for Mordecai, right? And so now Haman is being hung on the very gallows that he had prepared to kill Mordecai. You talk about a, a, a twist thing, a turn of events, yes, a turn of events. And so that's what happens and here's the interesting thing. In all this, God is delivering his people. They are, the, the decree could not be removed because uh, the king's decree couldn't be changed. But they added to it that the Jews could fight back. They fought back and God gave them victory. Isn't that interesting? We see God giving them victory even today. Iron Dome and those types of things. You wonder, is God still working with them? Yes, he's still working with them. It's pretty amazing. And so God gives them victory, and they have the Feast of Purim that comes out of this as a celebration of the victory and the deliverance God gave them on that, that day. So, but one, one thing that's really interesting about this book, it is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. And so here's what's going on. God behind the scenes is working all these details out. His providence, he's working all these details out to, to preserve his people. And we can be reminded of this. God is present in the midst of our trials. Even when sometimes he's unseen, he's in the midst. He's there, he's present, he's working. And one interesting thing, you remember, most of these Jews were supposed to have already been back in their homeland, right? But there was Jews who stayed there. And even in the midst of their disobedience and not saying, all right, we're going to uplift, we're going to uproot our families and get back to where God wants us to be, even in the midst, God was still working in their lives and delivered them even in the midst of their disobedience, which is a fascinating perspective to me. God is sovereign. Even when life does not make sense, he sees all. There are no coincidences with God. We have choices we have to make. Amen? But God is, sees everything and he is working it out for his glory and for his purposes. And so here's what I would really like to just boil down to is this. 
in all these people, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, God is working in their lives and through their lives to accomplish his purposes. And even in the midst of pagan environments, even in the midst of incredible upheaval, God is working out his purposes. And God is using people like these uh, to, to accomplish what he wants. And you know what? Even through the opposition, these people, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they trusted God. They renewed their faith in him, and God used them. And even in the midst of opposition in our lives, if we'll stay faithful to God, God will use us. And you know what? We look at our, we look at our world today. We look at America, and we wonder, how much further can we go? Is there going to be uh, more tyranny that comes down the, uh, down the line? Is there going to be a, a greater loss of freedom that comes down the line? Are our rulers going to be more and more against God, more pagan and more secular? What are we going to do then? Well, let's be like Ezra. Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's be like Esther. Be faithful to God. Be spiritually renewed. And even in the midst of all that, God can still use us to work out his purposes. God has not lost track of all this. I don't know about you. My heart sinks every time I see anything about Afghanistan right now. And I don't know what the right answer is to that, friends. I don't, I don't, I'm not a military strategist, but I know one thing. Something went bad wrong. And we have shame on our face. And I know this. God is still working in the midst of all this. It, it, it greatly grieves me to see what's, what's happened, some of the decisions that come out of Washington. But God still works in the midst of all this. I don't stand behind that at all. Something was wrong. There's injustice that's going on. There are, there are lives, there are our own countrymen that are in peril because of some decisions. But God, in the midst of all this, is still, is still working, and he is still faithful in the midst of all this. So I just want, I, I hope that in some way that this encourages you tonight, looking at these from a, from a highlight, that God is still there, and he has an amazing way of, uh, of working these things together for his purposes and even delivering his people in amazing ways. And I pray that for the for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in Afghanistan right now, our own countrymen, and those that, that fear the name of the Lord. Uh, I, I, I trust that God will, uh, he will be the same God he was uh, back in this time. So let's just keep our eyes on him and uh, keep realizing what he's done in the past. He, he hasn't changed at all. He hasn't changed at all. And he will still be faithful either way. Even if America doesn't change, God's going to still be faithful. Let's be faithful to him. Let's ask him to help us with that. Thank you, Lord, uh, for these stories, and thank you for putting them in Scripture. May you help us as your people tonight to be faithful. Lord, we, we hurt, our hearts ache uh, to see the direction of our land. I can only imagine that uh, some of these prophets, well, Lord, you put it in your word, Nehemiah, how his heart broke for the condition of his, his country spiritually and physically. Lord, our hearts, um, our hearts are shocked by some of the things that we see, but Lord, you still used faithful people like Nehemiah and Esther and Ezra to do your bidding. And so please, Lord, help us to be fully committed to you and uh, to be faithful to you who is always faithful. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode, and please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for checking out this episode. And we look forward to having you join us again right here on the Grace Baptist Church podcast.